Okay, uh, this is the second half of the first first class on the Bible study methods. The Bible is, as I pointed out earlier, is a unique book. It's always a bestseller. It answers all the basic questions of life. It promises eternal life. It gives people answers to the most practical questions, but it's also the most ignored. Uh, most people have, a lot of people have a Bible in their house. They have a family Bible, and they never, ever look at it. So as we get started, just kind of an orientation on the Bible before we look at some other other texts. Um, the word Bible comes from the Greek word Biblos. Biblos is just a word that means book. This The Bible is a book, but it is a collection of writings, and it's the collection of sacred writings uh, for the Christian church. Now, when we talk about the Bible, there's some words, about four words, I want you to make sure you understand so that as we discuss the scriptures, they're clear to us. The first is the word revelation. The Bible is God's revelation to man. Revelation means a disclosure or an unveiling. God makes himself known to us. He discloses himself to us. The Bible is God's book to us, not as neo-Orthodox or liberal theologians believe, man's writings about his spiritual experience with God. That makes it subjective. But the Bible is the objective revelation of God to man. Now, there are two different kinds of revelation that we talk about. The first is special, or excuse me, general revelation, and the second is special revelation. General revelation is nonverbal. It's the revelation that we see described in Romans 120 and Psalm 119. Psalm 120 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So people, every human being can look at the creation and discern certain things about the nature and the power of God so that they are without excuse. They know God. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, but it's nonverbal. Utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It's revelation in general revelation is doesn't give us specifics, but it does give us information. And then we have special revelation, and special revelation is what we have in recorded in the Bible, or there's some special revelation that was given to Daniel, that was given to some other Old Testament prophets and probably New Testament apostles that was not recorded. It's still special revelation. It's still inerrant and still has the uh, infallible, even though it wasn't recorded for human uh, transmission. The, se- the first word's revelation, two types, general and special. The second word is inspiration, a word that we've often heard. Uh, it comes from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. But the word in the Greek is theopneustos, a combination, a compound word made up of theos, God, and neustos, 
from pneuma, meaning breath or wind. It's God breathing out. Very different from the way we use the concept of inspiration when we speak of an artist being inspired in a painting or a writer being inspired when they composed a a work of literature. This has to do with God breathing his word into the writer of scripture so that they inhaled it from God, as it were, and exhaled it into their writing. The definition of inspiration is that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. Now, that's a, these, this is a long sentence, but it emphasizes the fact that God's the one in control of the process. God is the one who originates Scripture. God is the one who originated language. Language existed in God before the creation. When he created, he did so by his word. Now, just think, God created Paul's soul. Moses' soul, Daniel's soul. God knows Daniel, Moses, Paul, Jude, John better than they know themselves. So God can inspire the writings that they write in such a way that he knows exactly how they are going to write it. He knows their personality, their style, their background, all of those factors, so that he can oversee or superintend is another word that's used or direct them so that without violating their individual personalities, their background, their education, their intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, personality, all of these different factors, God can, can, can incarnate his word through them so that the result is a complete product of that individual human author. But God has superintended it so that it is exactly what God intended to communicate. So there's a dual authorship in Scripture. And this means, in the last part, uh, this, this, it was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. And we'll see later on as we go through our study that this means that each word is significant, even the form of the word, even the, the, the grammatical forms, the tenses of the verbs, plural or singular, everything is, every detail is important and, and significant. Now when we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, there's a purpose for inspiration and that is that it is profitable for something. This is good for us. It's going to produce something in us. First of all, it teaches us. It provides instruction. This is the Greek word didaskalia, which is the basic word for instructing, teaching, has to do with organizing, categorizing, and explaining uh, information with a view towards changing how someone thinks and lives. It's, it's instruction, but it's in, uh, not, not just a sort of a detached instruction, but an instruction that's designed to change and improve us. And it's organized in the way it's presented. But when we teach, we learn that we have some wrong ideas, and so it brings with it a reproof. And the word there is elenkmas, which is also a word that has a significance in the courtroom. And so it is definitely showing that we have some 
views and ideas that are wrong. That's where humility comes in. There are so many people I've run into, they don't want to read the Bible because the Bible's going to tell them that they're wrong. And they just can't handle it. They can't handle the truth. They can't handle that they have wrong ideas or wrong opinions. They can't face correction. So humility is essential to any kind of learning. And this idea of reproof is the idea of, re- of presenting irrefutable uh, proof or evidence that something is true. The third word is correction uh, from the uh, word eponothosis. Eponothosis. I've always had trouble with that word. Orthosis, like um, like uh, orthopedic, orthodontist, has the idea of making something straight. So the idea of correction is straightening us out. We're given reproof, which shows us where we're definitely wrong. And then correction puts us on the right path. So correction is that idea of restoring us to the correct uh, path or the way of life. And then the uh, last phrase is instruction in righteousness from the word paideia, which has to do with the discipline of training for a child. And so we are trained, disciplined in righteous behavior from a study of God's Word, constantly being reminded of how we should live and where we're wrong. But we realize that from this passage and from the next passage, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that the Bible is not just man's Word. It is God's Word. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us a little bit more about the uh, the mechanics or how inspiration occurred. Uh, Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What he means by that is that as Scripture is written before Peter, I mean before him there was mostly just Old Testament Scripture at that time. He knew of some of Paul's writings, but mostly he's thinking in terms of Old Testament Scripture that what the prophets wrote is not subjective. You can't, one person can't make it mean one thing and another person make it mean something else. And the writer doesn't make it mean what he wants it to. It's not a matter of their own interpretation. They are given the information via the Holy Spirit. And so he says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the word that's translated moved by the Holy Spirit, it's a word that is, that is used to describe the act of wind on the sails of a sailing vessel moving it across the ocean. It's unseen, but it's felt. And then Hebrews 4.12, we're told, uh, the word of God is living and active. Because it's from God, there is a power to it. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, most Christians have, if they've read their Bible very much, you go back, you read the same passage over and over again, over the decades, and you just always seem to find something new. You always see something new there. There's a depth to the Scripture that, that we just can't fully plumb. And I think even in, in eternity future, we're still going to discover things from the Scripture that, that are not evident to us yet. It's not that it's not there, it's just that there's only so much we can, can, um, can comprehend. The Word of God is alive and active or powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing as far as the division of soul of the spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Bible is powerful and it changes lives. So Second Timothy 2.15, this is New American Standard. Most of you are familiar with the King James translation to study to show yourself approved unto God. The Greek word there, spadazo, is sort of a general word for putting forth a lot of effort and energy in a particular direction. So it's usually translated along the lines of diligence. But the context is talking about diligence in learning the scripture. That's why the King James writer, translators translated it study because that would be the implication. How are you diligent in learning the scripture? That's the idea of studying. So it's, um, it's not a, a precise translation, but they, they caught the basic idea there. And the idea of handling the scripture is the Greek word orthotomeo, similar to the one we saw in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 about correction, and, and it's a cognate word, or that means it's a related word, and it means to cut straight or to make a straight row or to plow a straight furrow. And so when we are rightly dividing, that was the old King James, or accurately handling the word of God, that is cutting it straight. We are accurately determining what the word of truth says and what it means. Now, what's important about this is that it tells us that we need to be reading the Bible. There are a lot of values to reading the Bible. For example, Psalm 119, verse 7 through 11, we read, I will praise you with the uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. This is telling us why we need to study the Bible for ourselves. We learn God's righteous judgments. In verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Well, we have to know the statutes before we can keep them. Verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. How do we keep straight? We have to pay attention to what the word says, and we need to read it daily to be reminded of things, because our little sin nature just wants to flush the Bible right out of our stream of consciousness as quickly as it can. So by reading on a regular basis, we're constantly reminded of the basic principles of living the spiritual life and what God has done for us and the grace of God as well. Uh, verse 10, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Well, we have to know the commandments if we're not going to wander from them. And then finally, verse 11 says, your word I have hidden in my heart. That's not just reading it, that's memorizing it, making it a part of our thinking because uh, there are going to be times maybe in our lives when the only time we have access to Scripture is what's me- what we've memorized. If we think about when Jesus was in the wilderness and tested by Satan. He handled the temptation of Satan by quoting Scripture. He quoted from Deuteronomy. He didn't say, well, there's a biblical principle here that you're violating. Never once did he say that. He quoted scripture. That's the pattern for us. If Jesus needed to quote scripture, what do you think we need to do? We need to memorize that and have that in our soul. Um, 
Psalm 100, and there, there are several things that the Bible says about what the Scripture does for the believer. It strengthens the believer. Psalm 119.28 and 1 John 2.14. Uh, Psalm 119.28, my soul melts for heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, this is an adolescent believer, because you are strong. Why are they strong? Because the word of God abides in you. The Bible gives us hope, Psalm 119.74 and 81. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. Psalm 119.81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. The Bible gives light and understanding. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119.130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Psalm 119.169, let me, let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. John 7.17 and 17.17, it reveals God's will. Uh, Psalm 119.50, I'm going to move through these a little faster, not quote every one of them. Psalm 119.50, And Psalm 119.54 gives comfort to us, gives comfort to us. The same is stated in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. So the Bible teaches us about our spiritual life as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible then, the believer is to read it, study it, use it, memorize it, and meditate on it. Joshua 1 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Joshua was a general. He wasn't a professional Bible teacher, prophet, Levitical priest, but he needed to meditate on God's word because he was a leader in Israel and he needed to meditate on it day and night so that the Bible is the most valuable possession we have and is more valuable, as the psalmist says in the latter part of Psalm 119, than any money amount of money we have. It's sufficient. Sufficient. That means it's, it's more than enough. There's nothing that God has left out of his word. It's sufficient for every problem we face in life. Third thing is it's our only source of spiritual nourishment, the only source of spiritual nourishment that we have. And fourth, it's the only means of growth that we have. That would be 2 Peter 2.2. 2. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we all need to be reading the Bible daily. Now, we've looked at the word in, uh, revelation and second, inspiration, and the third word is canonization. Canonization refers to the process the process whereby the inspired books of the Bible were recognized, identified, and collected. Now, there's a whole study on canonization, but basically the, we have the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. The Old Testament books were uh, canonized and were recognized by approximately 300 B.C., they were not adding any more books as being revelatory. And the New Testament was completed by 95, but the process of recognizing and collecting it uh, wasn't really finalized until the mid-part of the 4th century. 
Now, I ran across this quote from uh, Harold Wilmington's Bible handbook. The Bible is not an authorized collection of books. In other words, there wasn't some creed or council that came along and says, these are the 27 and no more. The council recognized what was already in practice. It simply affirmed a decision that was already been implemented. And so he says that the, the Bible is a collection of authorized books. That's the canon. The earliest known list that we have doesn't have all 27 books. is called the Muratorian Canon, found in Italy, and it was dated to somewhere between 175 and 200. Athanasius, the famous bishop of North Africa, wrote a letter at Easter to his, uh, to his bishops and pastors, and that's the first list that we know of, of just the 27 books that we have. There weren't any other books that were ever truly considered to be canonical. Some of the books that we have, like first and second, I mean, excuse me, second and third John, Jude, um, Second Peter, Hebrews, nobody knew who wrote Hebrews, so we're not sure if it's apostolic. They were questioned, but eventually they were in, recognized by practice in the church. But there were no other books like the Gospel of Thomas and some of these other things that come up. Those were never in any kind of contention. Nobody ever thought they should be canonical. There's no record there. Now, in terms of understanding the organization of the Bible, we have... One Bible in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, composed of three parts, the Torah, the Law, the Ketuvim, the Writings, and the Nevi'im, the Prophets. And then the New Testament is comprised of three parts, the Gospels, a historical book, which is Acts, the, and the Epistles, and then Revelation. In the Old Testament, there are 929 chapters. In the New Testament, there are 260 chapters for a total of 1,189 chapters. Chapters were, uh, different people tried to put different chapter schemes into the Bible. The one that actually got accepted and survived was one that was established by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, uh, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the early part of the 13th century from 1207 to 1228. He put the chapters in there, and then uh, Robert Stevens, or uh, <coughs> Robert Etienne, um, created a verse system. The story goes that while he was riding on horseback from Paris to Lyon, France, which is why some of the numbers are in strange places, I think. He had a few potholes in the road. Um, in the Old Testament, there are 23,214 verses. In the New Testament, there are 7,959 verses for a total of um, 31,173 verses in the Bible. Now, here's a little Bible math for you. If you read 85 verses a day, you can read the Bible in a year. Only 85 verses in a year. Now, there's a few chapters where they're longer than that, but most of them are much shorter than that. 85 verses is roughly equivalent to three and a quarter chapters a day. It takes 72 hours for somebody to read the Bible out loud. 
72 hours. You can read Genesis to Revelation in 72 hours. That works out to 4,320 minutes. And if you divide 4,320 minutes by 365 days, that means in 11.8 minutes a day, you can read the Bible out loud. Now, we all read faster silently than out loud, so we can read six or seven, eight minutes a day. You can read the Bible in a whole year. It's not that difficult. I didn't know how... Can you all read that? I was going to use that a little later on. Here's the uh, New Testament. We'll start with the New Testament, and we'll learn a little bit about the New Testament. And I want to sing a song. Are you ready, Eddie? Cue it up. I want everybody to stand up. This is always fun. I was telling uh, Sandy and, and uh, Sally were helping me with this. I got a song here for the Old Testament, and they were trying to find. There's a lot of different tunes that are used for Old Testament and New Testament songs. And I learned one for the New Testament. I never got the Old Testament one down, but I learned one for the New Testament, and I'm not changing my tune. <laughs> not after 60-something years. I'm sticking with the same old tune. And they kept coming up with other ones. I said, no, we're going to stick with the same old tune. Some of you know that probably learned the same tune that I did for learning the books of the New Testament. Some of you may not even know all the books of the New Testament. But this is always fun. One of my great memories from seminary. When I went to seminary, it was all men, no women allowed, because it was for training pastors to be pastors. And um, classes were large. I had a class of about 900 men in church history class. And back in those days when they still had really high standards, you had to wear a coat and tie to class every day. And so we had about 900 men stand up, all in their three-piece suits. That was in the late 70s. Everybody was wearing a three-piece suit to look sharp and look good. And we sang, I may never march in the infantry, with all of the motions. And that was so much fun. Singing kids' songs as adults is a lot of fun. I think Sally said, well, this is more of an adult tune. I said, I don't want adult tune. We want to have fun. Okay? Play it, play it Eddie, so we can just kind of hear the tune, because I'm not a great singer, but I'll leave you there. Y'all know that? How many of y'all know that tune? Okay, y'all help me out. Now, you know, when, when you're memorizing the New Testament books, of course, all the first books end with second. It's first. It's not 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Some people do that. It's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. All the T books are together. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. All the T books are together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are at the beginning, and it ends with Revelation. So this way, it's a great way to learn this, and you can learn it, teach it to your kids, teach it to your grandkids, teach it to the Good News Club, because uh, I know some of you are going to help out with that. Okay, Eddie, when you're ready, we'll we'll lead it off. Okay, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts and Epistle to the Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Come on, sing. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon, Hebrews, James, 
First and Second Peter, First John, Second John, Third John, Jude and Revelation. Now see, within a month you're going to get all those New Testament books, and then we'll start on the Old Testament. We'll get it all down. Okay, maybe we find a f- little bit faster tune. Or we can just sing it a cappella. Okay, you all can sit down. You can find that tube, tune. You can go to YouTube and probably find it. I'm gonna, uh, the, the, I've got a YouTube link for the Old Testament one that we'll send out, but just learn that. It's great fun. Learn all the books of the Bible. For years, even when I was in seminary, they'd say a book, and I'd go, wait a minute. And I'd just kind of go through my head. Okay, now, let's get look at the tools. We've got about 10 minutes left. I was hoping we'd have a little more time. Uh, I've got a lot of different tools down here. I want you to uh, just expose you to these uh, different tools that we have. So I'm going to switch uh, the program up here and go to Lagos. Now, I've got to figure out what that is. Okay, we'll get that out of the way. Okay, I've got my Lagos Bible software up here. Most of you can see this. I'm going to go ahead and... Um, uh, wait, wait, wait. Here. Get rid of this. Get those numbers out of the way so we can just look at the Bible. First of all, let's talk about a Bible. We need to have a Bible. And there are different kinds of Bibles and different kinds of translations. Uh, Most of you are familiar with the King James Bible, New King James Bible, New American Standard, uh, NIV. Uh, Recent one that's come out is the ESV. Now, a little bit older translation that came out in the 50s was the RSV. It's, excuse me, it's been updated to the, to the NRSV. But there's basically two different views of translation or two different theories of translation. One is a more literal translation, but even a literal translation like the New American Standard or the ESV or NKJV isn't that literal. Because whenever you go from one language to another, you, you can't be as, as strict word for word as you, uh, because it just doesn't communicate. That's not the way language works. But what you have is two, two ends of the spectrum. One is called, uh, formal equivalence, which tries to get as close to a word, literal word for word, uh, clause for clause translation as possible. And that's the best kind of translation to use for Bible study. And those would indicate King, King James is a little antiquated, but I like the New King James Version as well as the NASB, which was updated in 95. Before that, they had the these and the thous in it still, and they took those out in 95. And then you have the... Um, let me see, you have the ESV. I've got one around here somewhere. I think I put it down there, and you can look at that. That's not bad. It's the same kind of idea. The, part of the problem is our culture is getting so dumbed down that I think uh, NKJV is considered like 11th or 12th grade reading level. ESV is about 8th grade. NIV is about 6th grade. And then you have horrible things like the message and the cotton patch gospel and they're they're really low, but we have a culture where people have a hard time reading and understanding things, and sadly, this impoverishes us because as they decrease the uh, the the level of reading, they take out words like propitiation and redemption and justification and reconciliation because people don't, just don't know those kinds of words, 
and this is really having an impact upon uh, upon the local the local church. Now here we have uh, New King James Version, and um, oh, before I get to that, let me talk about the other extreme, which is dynamic equivalence. So we have formal equivalence, which is more word for word, clause for clause, trying to be as as close to the original as possible in even the word order. And then in dynamic equivalence, it's sometimes called functional equivalence. This is more of a thought-by-thought or idea-by-idea translation. Some people think it sounds a lot like a paraphrase. It comes closer to that. And this would be, for example, the NIV. Uh, The NIV. And the NIV uh, is that way as well as this and then you have paraphrases, and a paraphrase is where you don't go to the original. You look at, for example, the, one of the first paraphrases that came out that was popular in the mid-20th century was the Living Bible. And I remember getting the Living Letters. That was the first that came out back in 1961 at Camp Isle. And you could read that, and, and that's great if you are reading for information, not reading to study, but if you just want to... As, and I was a kid, you know, I was about probably nine or ten years old at the time, and it was easier to read and to understand. And when I was in college, I had never read the Old Testament all the way through, and somebody had taken the Living Bible Old Testament and taken out a lot of the repetitious material and had written it like a Reader's Digest version. And I bought that at a local bookstore, and I've never seen it since. And I read through that whole thing in the Living Bible, and I, for the first time I understood the structure of the Old Testament and the history and how everything flowed and fit together. So paraphrases can be good to help us get the general idea. In my first church, which was down in Lamarck, Texas, I pastored down there for two years, I had a lot of... Uh, nothing wrong with being a blue-collar worker, but I had a lot of blue-collar workers who were blue-collar workers because they weren't very well educated and didn't do well at school. And I would give these guys at that time, David C. Cook had an illustrated children's Bible that was like cartoons. And I would give these guys a copy of that, and they would read that, and for the first time they had some sense of the Bible. And so things like that are helpful in, in, in that particular manner. Uh, in Lagos, we have a tool over here called the, I can't even see it now, called the, uh, not passage, it is, I can't see everything over here now. Text comparison. Let me open this up and I'll, Make it a little bigger. Okay. I took, um, let's take a verse like John 3, 16. King James Version, 1900, on the far left. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The New American Standard reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, not whosoever, Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, ever, have eternal life. New King James isn't that much dinner. Now let's go over to the living, to the NIV. NIV, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not only begotten, one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Then you have the paraphrase of the living Bible, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, 
that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the message, this is how much God loved you. See, that's wrong, as you know. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him. Bad punctuation there. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Just 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Notice the message on the far right. That's a paraphrase. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. Wait till you read the Cotton Patch Gospel. And it gets worse. I mean, I think the message is horrible. It's the version I love to hate. Um, so in the NIV my, my friend Wayne House, who was one of the editors for the Nelson Study Bible, refers to the NIV as the NIV commentary. Because the more you get away from a formal equivalence, the more the theology of the translator influences what is how he says it. For example, in the NIV, in, in, um, I'll put it up here and see what we get from this. 1 Corinthians 3. I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal, even unto babes in Christ. The NIV says, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Worldliness is a totally different concept from flesh. Flesh is the sin nature. Worldliness is a different concept. Um, gee, I didn't get the message up there at all. Maybe I need to put the verse. I guess maybe the message doesn't have anything for 1 Corinthians. Anyway, that gives you kind of an idea of the difference in these these translations. You have all kinds of different Bibles. You have chronological Bibles, which try to put everything in order. You have one-year Bibles, which are great because they break it down for you as to what to read every day so you can read through the Bible in a year. You have study Bibles. Some study Bibles are written from, deal with a lot of different issues in terms of explaining all of the scripture, like the Ryrie Study Bible, the Schofield Study Bible, the Thomas Nelson Study Bible. And in those three examples I gave you, Schofield, Ryrie, Thomas Nelson, they're all written from a, pretty much a dispensational viewpoint. Uh, you have other Bibles. You have the Geneva Study Bible, which was very popular. Uh, it was one of the early English translations. It's reformed. Uh, you have uh, Charismatics, have the Dakes Study Bible. Uh, those are just different broad-based study Bibles. I like, if I recommend one, I recommend the Ryrie Study Bible, which is down there. I, he revised it some in the late 90s. And since then, it hasn't been out in New King James. I have one of the original ones in New King James. Um, those are helpful. Then you have some that are really geared towards specific things. I have an archaeological study Bible down there, which has lots of notes and maps and pictures and information related to archaeological information in the text. Then you have the apologetic study Bible. Then you have the uh, Faith Defender Study Bible down there, um, the Bible that I use and have carried around for the last 10 or 12 years, which I really need to send to a binder, is the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. It just has lots of notes just related to, to that which is prophetic. Since I have material that I wrote and put in there, I like to 
you know, I'm <coughs> self-absorbed, so I like to carry a Bible that I've written, published in. Um, so those are just some different kinds of, of study Bibles. Uh, <coughs> then we have Bible dictionaries. I'm going to go over just a little bit because I want to cover this. You have, this is the life, uh, uh, what are they, what are they? I never remember the name of this thing. The Lexham Bible Dictionary, which you get with the uh, Faith Life Study Bible. And it has in the table of contents, of course, it goes from A through Z. And you can look up just about uh, anything in any kind of a Bible dictionary. So here I went to the article uh, on Acts. And you can read everything that you ever wanted to know about the book of Acts. It'll give you an outline of the Bible, uh, of the book, give you all of the main ideas, things of that nature. This is the, uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary. That's the, Lexham is the publishing house for, for Lagos. You have, um, uh, a wide variety of different Bible dictionaries. In Lagos, you have these fun little tools that you can move around and go to different kinds. This just gives you an example of a list. You have the, 1918 version of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the 19 mid-80s version. Uh, you have the Encyclopedia of Christianity, Erdman's Bible Dictionary, Easton's Bible Dictionary, Dictionary of the Bible, Dictionary of the Apostolic Church, all manner of uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. Uh, there's dozens and dozens. A lot of them are very good. Zondervan, Baker, some of the those are more conservative and they're, they are very helpful. You have different kinds of uh, Bible atlases. Uh, many of them come with a lot of nice illustrations and pictures and charts now, and that especially helps, and they have a lot of different maps, which helps you to orient to, uh, to different things. And then, let me see, I have another panel to go to here. Here you have study Bibles. This is the Nelson Study Bible. Uh, they give different different notes, expansions on different ideas. Here was the Ryrie Study Bible. Ryrie has a nice, concise um, outline of doctrine and theology at the back of the Ryrie Study Bible. That's based on his survey of Bible doctrine that he published back in the uh, back in the 60s. This is the Faith Life Study Bible, and you have the various notes that are there. Uh, for each verse, and it gives you expansion information. Also has access to various uh, illustrations and books and maps and things of uh, things of that nature. So you have uh, common and you have uh, Bibles and study Bibles, Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks are small one volume uh, tools. Uh, this is the old. Um, Unger's Bible Handbook that I bought back in uh, probably about, uh, well, I don't know where this one came from. That came out of the church library, I think. I had one at home like that, or maybe I got rid of it years ago. And then this was the Haley's Bible Handbook, which I got years ago. And um, and they're rather small. This is the new, Bible, the new Unger's Bible Handbook, which has lots of pictures a lot more information, and they usually go through every book of the Bible and give you a good overview of the Bible, that book of the Bible, an outline, background information, things of that nature. They don't get in depth, but they're good. They're it's good survey material. They also give you information about 
about the Bible itself. They'll usually have sections dealing with archaeology and church history and the basic structure of the Bible. And so you can learn a lot just by reading through uh, a Bible handbook. Here's the Unger's Bible Dictionary. And, uh, and then I have some atlases up here. So I'd encourage you to come and look at those just so you can see uh, the differences in these these types of tools. For word studies, which we won't get into for a little while, the main tool is a concordance. There are different concordances. What a concordance does, is an English concordance, is you look up the English word like the word love, and it will list all of the places in the New Testament where the word love is used. If you have Young's concordance, it will break it down according to phileo. You'll have all the love passages. Every time love is used with phileo, those will be grouped together. Then agapao, those will be grouped together. Uh, If you have the Strong's Concordance, it will just list all of them, and then there's a number out to the side. And that number then allows you to turn to a rather uh, basic Greek-Hebrew dictionary in the back. You just All you have to do is look up the number, and that will tell you what that word is. So as you read through, you can see the uh, different numbers and identify what the Greek or Hebrew word is. That allows you to do word studies. Another tool that allows you to do word studies is um, this. This is the Vines Expository. There are several versions of Vines. Vines originally was New Testament. Uh, he was a 19th century theologian. Uh, in Lagos, I prefer the uh, complete expository dictionary. I forget what, there's some minor differences in the way they're organized. But um, you can look up any English word. For example, you can look up the word eternal, and there's a list of the different Greek words that are used for eternal. And that helps you, gives you a little more of an ability to look up uh, English words and find out what the Greek words are and the differences in the Greek, the Greek words. We'll get more into that when we get into, um, when we get into doing word studies. And then we have, uh, uh, topical study Bibles like the Nave study Bible, Nave topical study Bible. And that lists, uh, all the verses according to, um, topic. There we go. So you can look up any topic in the Bible. For example, you can go to something like R for redemption, and you can scroll down and find the word. Redeemer, Redeemer, Redemption, and it will list the word and then break it down in terms of different categories and then give uh, a list of Bible verses where redemption is taught. That's a very helpful uh, tool to have for Bible study as well. Okay, that's about as much as I wanted to cover this evening. Next time, according to the syllabus, you should have read through the first uh, four chapters or so. Where did I put my syllabus? Here it is. Uh, you should have read through the first four chapters before you came today. A lot of the material I covered here is also covered there. And then next time read chapter 5 and 6.
Where did my, did I pass out my, there it is, the, the workbook. And mostly I just want you to read through the next two, those two chapters and then do the first, um, now I don't want you to do any, any worksheets or anything, just read through chapter five and chapter six in, uh, in Hendrix for next time. And that should do it. Any questions? Okay, Judy. There are some exercises in the main text, and then, of course, I guess, in the workbook, uh, when you say do the exercises. The exercises, I, I want to sign all the exercises. Okay. There are a lot of exercises there. I'll give you specific things to do and when, when I want you to do those exercises, but I'll probably wait until I talk about it before I assign the exercise. So next time we'll have more work to do. But this time, just basically read through those next two chapters. Okay? All right, great to see so many here. Next time I'll try to finish right at 7.30. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, real, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. Let me, uh, I just had a lot to cover on those tools. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together and pray for each one as we Start reading that you will help us to understand uh, what we're reading and to go to a greater depth of our understanding and our Bible study. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Oh, yeah, I did think of one thing. I want you to read the book of James every single day between now and next week. That's five chapters. Every day, five chapters. So that mean we won't be talking next week. <laughs>